Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 3, season 2 of our Pebble in the Pond podcast. I am super excited to be able to share with you a conversation I recently had with an amazing person by the name of Andrew Douglas. For those of you who don't know, Andrew is an experienced legal practitioner, accomplished speaker and chair of masterclasses in workplace law. He has authored several books on health and safety law and is widely published legal practitioner on workplace well-being. One of the things that I loved about my conversation with Andrew uh, was how not only down to earth he is, but also how he takes such a complex topic and subject and makes it so simple to understand. And I'm sure after listening to today's conversation, you'll agree. So listen in as Andrew and I discuss the importance of workplace law and balancing the best interests of both employees and employers. All right, welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Sam. Andrew, tell us a bit about um, a bit about what you do. Um, I'm a workplace lawyer, like most workplace lawyers. Our focus is more on restorative practices and trying to fix problems rather than deal with them after they've been destroyed. And as a result of that, we look at concepts around well-being. We educate and train our employers. We only act for employers in those concepts. And to date, it's been quite successful. And how long have you been in this space for? Oh, too long. I'm over 60, mate. So it's embarrassing <laughs> to ask. That's a lot of experience, though. So. Well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> how have you seen it evolve? I mean, how, how over the, the time you've been involved in, I guess you've been in, um, in workplace law for some time, how have you seen it coming through, specifically relating to mental health? I think the way we see it coming through is in failure. So you see it coming through in workers' compensation. You see it coming through in our OHS practice um, in serious injuries, fatalities and illnesses. You see it in the management of behaviours which are clearly mental health based and which have been treated wrongly as bad behaviour. Um, and you see it in the loss of productivity in business who start to realise they're making the same mistake. You know, they've sacked one person and then six months later we're back having the same conversation. You go, yeah, it's a leadership problem. This is it's not the employee problem here, it's a leadership problem. And on top of that, there has been, you know, a wonderful um, change in the way mental health is being spoken about. Yes. over the last last 10 years, which mm. has allowed us to start having these conversations that say, um, yes, this person's performing badly, but is there another reason? And is there a better way of managing this that is less dislocative for the business and less damaging? You have a number of different specialties that you focus on. Is workplace or and safety been uh, one that's been just become a key focus lately, or is it? They're not so much specialties. You know, I'm a workplace lawyer. I yes. started off doing hard IR and learned very quickly that the methods of dispute in IR negotiations and dispute were stupid and were damaging um, 
employee engagement and were hugely expensive to business. Massive losses of opportunity costs coming through. Um, through that area, we merged that into wood safety law because a large part of industrial disputation sits around safety law. And gradually, bit by bit, that extended into workers' compensation, discrimination law, and all the things that sit around it. And what I did around about 10 years ago is step back and go, um, these all connect. And spent quite a lot of time thinking and actually starting to write and saying, how does this all come together? How do we change this highly dis disputatious environment mm. where people are seen as wrong and step back and go, there's an organisational answer that's sitting in here somewhere. What does it look like? And then how do I develop a toolbox for my employers to go out and manage people in a respectful and civil way that increases the value of people and the value people give to organisations? Mm. How do I do that? And that's really been the journey of the last 10 years. Well, it certainly is a journey and, and one that you're doing very uh, very well at and, and obviously a lot of experience in this. And uh, You talk about leadership uh, in, this, in, in the effect of do you think that leaders are the people that should be affecting change with regards to workplace mental health? Uh, unquestionably, <clears throat> the data, and we heard it today at the conference, the data that comes out that tells you what are the social determinants of mental health, the data that sits beneath that is what is the productivity loss that comes with mental health. And it's massive, you know. It's, mm. it's somewhere between 10 and 40 billion Australian a year we lose through mental health issues. If it's 10, that's a lot. If it's 40, it's a huge amount of stuff. Mm. So for leaders to ignore it and go, no, mental health's not our problem, Product productivity's our problem, just misses the point. What, what's really clear is that leaders have a capacity to shape an organisation to create both wealth for the organisation and wealth for the people involved, and the two are connected. So if we create personal wealth, whether it's mm. money or whether it's emotional wealth, we know that people will be more engaged, and Australians average 23% engagement in their workplaces. You know, that's 77% of your employees are not working hard. Isn't that a leadership problem? Yeah. That's not the 77% of the workers. Yeah. That's got to be a leadership problem. The, the statistics are, are alarming, aren't they? I mean, and, and at the same time, you look at the opportunities of that to say, well, if you can harness that and tap into that and rectify or create uh, some sort of a... Do you think it's culture? Do you think it's it starts with culture and having being able to have... The conversations with people? Yeah, look, I think cultures, we, we should just park culture for a second and okay. come back to it. What I think for leaders to say is when they come home at night and they face their partner, their wife or their husband, what is the story they really want to tell? They want to say, look, we've had a 7% return this quarter. It's been fantastic. That's a great story to come and tell. But what about we've had this huge engagement process with our staff, we're getting incredibly positive feedback and we've had a 10% return and the two are connected and I feel like I'm actually changing people's lives. Mm. Isn't that the conversation as a leader I want to have? Now that affects culture mm. and culture is, when you look at the, the science of culture, culture is really the measurement of how people as a group see an organisation and you do that by putting pressure on an organisation and seeing what are the signs that pop out the top. Mm. So in one of the law firms that I used to work in, when things were a bit tight and work wasn't coming through, the leaders of the organisation used to punish the young solicitors and say, why aren't you working? Why aren't you billable hours? Now it's absolute nonsense because they couldn't generate the work. Mm. The leaders had to generate the work. 
But that was the culture of this business, which was a blame-based culture. Mm -hmm. So if we can change a culture where leaders say, no, this is my responsibility. They put their hand up and say, this is my responsibility. I own this. I own your welfare. Mm. And that's what Lord Robin said in the 1970 Act. The employer is responsible for caring for the welfare of its worker. But think how that makes you feel as a leader. Mm. Like, do you just want to have financial success? And where we go and see only financial success is in this year, we don't find happiness. Yeah. It's a lie. It's you don't find happiness no. where there's just pure financial success. There must be a higher level of purposeful engagement. What are you seeing the trends with workplace law? Are you seeing it getting more convoluted, complicated, or are you seeing as we're evolving, policy changing, do you think it's becoming more uh, clearer, more No, definitive? look, I, I think the difficulty with... Um, modern governments, and you will not be surprised when I say this, is there is a lack of deep thought and increasingly um, a lack of bipartisan support around goodness. So we're starting to see policy change, which isn't about affecting good communities. It's about delivering um, an ideology of one party or another. So I don't think the modern parts of legislation that we're being hinted at at the moment reflect well on us as a group of people at all. That said, that's all happened in the past. And what we've seen is eventually they go through the evidence collection stage and because governments don't actually read their own papers, good things happen by mistake. And the law hasn't changed dramatically, really dramatically, over 30 years in workplace law. Okay, when the beginning of the discrimination legislation has hardly changed. It's almost the same across the whole of Australia. Slightly different in slightly different protected attributes like physical appearance is protected in, in Victoria because there was a case of a woman who was overweight, who was a bus driver, who was sacked. And so this individual small change occurred. But workers' compensation legislation has been reviewed umpteen times. Still doing the same job. Safety law was the last dramatic change we saw, which made nearly all states and territories get rid of their redundant old legislation and create things which were more like and better than the Victorian law. And Western Australia is still doing Western Australia's thing. But other than that, the law is inclined to just bubble along. And that's the advantage of having judges who keep focusing on what the intention of the legislation is, which is to protect workers. So all workplace law is beneficial in nature. It is designed to protect employees. Yes. And while it has that beneficial nature, the focus that you and I are talking about today is alive. Mm. Um, If we were to see um, government become less driven by public good and more driven by... Uh, by their own ideology, that could change, but I don't see it happening in my lifetime. No. No. Do you th- what, are the, what are the key challenges you think fa- facing us within the workplace and, and the law around mental health? I think the key change for me, because I'm not a young guy, is that I, and I started off not being in law. You know, I worked in malt houses for local governments. I did a whole lot of pretty ordinary jobs. There was tons of layers of management when I started off. <clears throat> You know, I now share my, my PA with another, another partner. That, that was unheard of 20 years ago in the law. So we're actually doing a lot more. We are actually a lot busier than we used to be. Um, that's good if you're doing clever work. Mm. Okay, that, that's sustaining. It, it drives you. If you're driven by what you're doing, that's really good. But the fact is we're doing a lot, a lot of work which is not clever work. And increasingly, as we get better at what we're doing, there is a whole group of people who are doing meaningless work, work that they don't gain happiness from. 
And we're also seeing with the changes in the gig economy, which are very substantial. We, we don't see them, sorry, we don't see them day to day, um, but it's very dramatic, that change, in that there are, there are more people who are less employed than they want to be doing jobs which they are less happy than they want to be at. So we have this huge at-risk group of people who are floating around, and they are also inclined to be people who are more marginalised in the community, have a histories of unemployment and mental health issues. So there is this growing burgeoning group in our community who are incredibly vulnerable doing work which is leading towards them being more unhappy mm. and feeling less safe. So the challenge for us as a community is to recognise that change and we're not, we keep talking about the rationalist view of the world which is this is good change, change is good, you know. Um, we're getting better technology. Well, better technology is taking away a lot of the thinking space that lots of people used to do. Yeah. And the volatility in the workplace, you know, as we move towards another recession, once again, you know, this will be the third recession within 15 years. That means lots of jobs will go. Lots of the certainty that people grew up with, you know, in my generation, you grew up with absolute guarantee of work. Well, my children didn't grow up with that. And you held one job for a long period of time. Yeah. And your family probably went there as well. Yeah. In the same place. So we've, we've lost the things that humans need to feel safe and good in. And we are increasingly in a more highly controlled and constructive environment where people don't have a lot of control over the work they do. And as a result of that, they don't find happiness. You know, like there's really fascinating studies on happiness. And what it shows is this. Um, you and I go out for a drink on a Friday night. We experience, you know, we have a drink, we laugh, we have happiness. Very short-lived. Doesn't doesn't fill my spirit box with happiness, mm. but I laugh and I tell stories about it. What makes people truly happy is when what makes them laugh, what makes them happy is a shared purpose. Yes. And it's that connection to purpose that creates a genuine happiness, which has massive health inputs. And so when we come back to the leaders, what are leaders trying to do? They should be trying to create that shared purpose. They should be giving people a sense of what being good looks like so that they can celebrate that goodness. And they should be saying, look, we can get rid of this with technology, but we can create this autonomy and skill in you doing this. We can make you better. Now, that sounds exciting. If you achieve it, you get this happiness. And then you get this health dividend. And with the health dividend, you get productivity. Mm. So... It's binary. It's zeros and ones. It's very easy to follow. Mm. But people get caught in this thing, Sam's not my responsibility. He's just the employee. Well, the moment he walks through the door, he's mine. Mm. That's what the law says. He is my responsibility. Do you think it's a lack of priorities amongst leaders that this hasn't been in effect and it isn't in this way currently? I, th I think there's been a couple of things, and I, this isn't my area of expertise, so no, I'm sort opinion. of shooting the breeze at this yeah. stage. I think one of the problems is we've gone increasingly from a period of longitudinal, sorry, longitudinal assessment of what is good mm -hmm. to very short-term measures of what is good. So our reporting systems have gone from one year to, th to quarters, and now even my business does weekly reviews of performance and productivity. And therefore, any change in that creates an immediate reaction. Um, so we've lost sight of what being good is in the long term. And as we move in those short-term cycles, we're inclined to behave in matters which are in manners which are not generous, not thoughtful, but responsive to an immediate threat. 
And just like if you're out at a nightclub and someone comes up and grabs you by the shirt, your response is immediate, I've got to do this. Mm. But we don't have to live life like we're in a nightclub. Mm. And, you know, great organisations step back and say, no, our future looks like this. It's three to five years. There's going to be bumps along the way. Our focus is on creating great people because they, we know they will take us on that road. Very hard to do that when your reporting periods are weekly. So that's, that's yeah. the change that I've seen. And the fact is, you know, a short-term failure can lead to a loss of a job. You only need to look at the AFL or rugby league to see very quickly yeah. what happens if a coach doesn't succeed, even though he's during a, during a period of rebuilding and everyone agrees with it. Yeah. It's Overnight, ruthless. they just get rid of them mm. and destroy all the culture they've created in the process of doing it. I 100% agree with you there. With the investment, though, there, there are stats out there, I think, that show... Is that around a dollar invested can get a two dollar thirty return on this sort yeah, of stuff? Yeah, so there's so, a number of studies. They range from about a dollar oh five to about two dollars thirty, based on what it is. Yeah, <clears throat> and there's the American uh, Health Association that shows if you look at the seven, um, just on general health, you look at the seven key risks around cardiac health, and you do the smallest amount of thing. There's an immediate two thousand dollar return in American terms in a year in which you introduce any form of support around those sort of processes. There's the evidence is now unequivocal that an investment in any form of health has an immediate upsurge in productivity and quality because any, any involvement in health makes a person feel more engaged and the healthier they are, the more capable they are and the combination of the two means that you get this wonderful sort of convergence of being more able to do something and wanting to do something. That's productivity. Tell me, tell me about the the grey area where I guess where we're saying that I think you mentioned it earlier, which was uh, the erosion. Was it the erosion? Uh, traditional employment relationships and stresses at home. So the impact of at home, and I think you had a statistic. Yeah, what, through through the software that we have, we've picked up a whole lot of EAP data, um, depopulated EAP yeah. data, I might add, and what it shows that about eighty percent of the reason that people access EAP is from issues which are not related to work, they're home-related issues. And that just makes sense, doesn't it, Sam? Mm. You know, the things that matter to me in my life are my children, my wife, my grandchildren. They're the things I worry about. And as I was coming up in the plane had Wi-Fi, yes. I was sending my oldest daughter a message because her husband's about to go overseas and to check up on a, on a little boy's health when I should have been preparing for today's presentation. That was the thing that was foremost in my mind. Mm. That's who we are as people, who we love, where we hurt Emotional most. Emotional connection. Um, and the moment that person, like Andrew, that's me, walks across the line and comes and does work today, mm. then that's who I am. Whatever that thing is that's worrying me, that's part of who I am and it's who the employer is responsible for, which is why I'm saying that without compassion from an employer, I'm never going to have that conversation. You're my boss. Am I going to tell you? I'm worried about Alethea. She's going to be um, on her own with her husband away for a couple of weeks. And I know it's troubling her. I'm not going to tell you that unless you care about me. Yes. Now, you might say then, well, look, how's that going to impact you, Andrew? Are you going to be okay? Do you... Oh, no, no, it's okay. I'm just letting you know. You know it's a conversation in the day I fill in. And you know at that stage, privacy law says, okay, that's a private conversation with Andrew. I don't record that anywhere. I don't tell anyone about it. But if I said, look, it's really impacting and I'm... I'm troubled, I'm not able to do as well as I would, you'd have to say, well, look, what support do you need? Mm. Talk to me more so I understand what risks it places for you and the organisation so that I can manage it. But if you're not compassionate, you're not going to have the conversation, mm. which means 
two months later, I'm going to be failing and you're going to say, look, your performance is really bad. And by that stage, I'm starting to develop a mental health issue, which I'm not going to come back from too well. So the rehabilitative time is going to be very poor. I've done a lot of damage along the way. I've underperformed. I've let other people down. and Therefore, I feel unsafe in my own working environment because when I'm depressed, I know I'm failing people. In fact, that's actually what I think about the world. I think I'm failing everybody. So how do I bring myself back into being a meaningful member of a workplace when you've allowed me to fail? And my whole perception of myself is failure. I mean, it's crazy stuff, isn't it? Mm. Really, to allow that to occur. That's why we talk today about compassionate leadership rather than that, that empathetic objective behaviour of stepping back and going, yes, I, yes, this is the law. Empathetic compliance is what I call it. Yeah. What does that do? That stops people like me talking to you. That's what it does. Compassion, empathy, engagement, uh, mm. they're some key phrases you mentioned yeah. a few times. Do you feel like it's obviously, it's not enough? From like currently in the workplace, we're not getting, it's not common enough. Frontline managers, uh, up, up the line managers through CEOs, board levels. Are you, are you thinking that this is a real challenge area for us? I do. And I, the silly part of it is it's so easy to fix. Mm. So we know that most people got to their roles through technical capability. They didn't get there because they're wonderful managers. They didn't get there because they're good people. They got there because they have the technical capacities and experience that gets them there. So we know that the, the conversations that most people fear the most are conversations with someone who is vulnerable because they feel quite unskilled by it. And so we spend huge amounts of money teaching people the skills to have conversations, which would be great if the person cared, wouldn't it? But if they don't care, yeah, but if the person doesn't care, it's not getting anywhere. Mm. So the first part about training our supervisors and managers all the way up the line is to say, well, this actually starts and finishes with you caring. Genuinely. Yeah, yeah, that's right, genuinely. (laughs) And and, and if you're a narcissist and you're struggling with that, you're going to really struggle in this team. But that means just like listening when you have to do it in a deliberate way, there's deliberate ways of showing that you're caring. Um, and it means for me, who's not that skilled at caring, because I've been a lawyer for 30 years and work in six-minute units and truthfully actually only care about my family. I'm not that engaged in other people. I just like working in my brain. I, When I go to chat to you, I'll put my phones away. We won't meet in my office because I'll look at my screens. Um, and I'll talk to you immediately and say, look, I've observed these things and we need to talk about them. And you know I'm not skilled at this. So we're talking through it slowly. And, you know, you see my Christmas parties, my staff impersonate me being caring. Mm. But the answer is they do know I'm committed to it. Mm. They do know I'm doing my very best. They know I'm incompetent at it and they chuckle about it and laugh about it. Mm. And they actually help me out when I have the conversation sometimes when they're distressed. They go, I think this is harder for you, Andrew, than it is for me. They'll laugh about it. Mm. But it's a commitment. So you don't have to be 100% caring and compassionate. What you're going to be is someone who's utterly committed to your staff mm. and they must see your compassion. They must see you looking into their soul and caring about them mm. and being willing to go for that ride with them, whatever it takes. And you reference similar to a father to his daughter, yeah. a, a mother to their child, yeah. um, as though that sort of compassion. No, 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 I didn't mean it in that way. So it's a good point. What I'm saying is, you know, we look at our serious injuries and fatalities that come through the door. And so often you say to yourself, just imagine what happens if, the leader in that business, if the person who got killed was their son, mm. would this have happened? And the answer is no, they would have intervened. They wouldn't have allowed that risk to occur. So I just use that as a method of saying, it's an odd morality that we have that 
um, you'd prevent your child or grandchild from any risk. You'd, you'd throw your body on the line to stop them. And yet in a workplace when someone's at risk, you say, what a stupid person that is. And I don't get that morality. Um, so no, I don't, I don't expect people to have the compassion of a family because that's a really, that's a special and treasured sort of thing. What I expect them to do is to go, when Sam comes to work for me, he is my employee and that has obligations that I'm committed to his health and well-being. Because that's what the safety legislation says you've got to be. Now the answer is how do I evidence that in the way I behave every day? That's a really important thing. They're the skills I want supervisors and managers to learn because then when I chat to you and you know Andrew's a little bit disconnected, a bit cerebral, you know, he's all, <laughs> all yeah. those things which means this is, this is hard work for him too. Yeah. But you know he's doing it and you know why he's doing it because you're his employee and he's committed to you. He's committed to the best health outcome for you. At that stage, I mightn't be a perfect person. I mightn't be a dad. I mightn't be any of those things. But you know you can trust me because you know why I'm doing it, because I'm committed to you. This uh, the Workplace Mental Health Conference started as a conversation last year from feedback we got at one of our other conferences where we had some corporate HR coming to our mental health conferences. And when I spoke to them, they said, well, we're not really getting, we want to know what, what obligation we have as the employer, what should our policy look like from a legal point of view, but also as a holistic wellness point of view to be an employer of choice. You deal with a lot of large corporations, I see with your experience. How, um, how much is this becoming really important work that people are actively coming to say, hey, we need to look at our workplace mental health policy and see well, we don't have one, what should it be and what are we legally, is there a two-part question, I guess, what are they legally supposed to have? Is there something other than just genuine compassion yep. versus uh, yeah, how do they actively be the employer of choice and creator over and above what's required? Okay, so look, there's a, there's more than two questions there. So. Yeah, okay. probably. <laughs> but, You're carried away. <laughs> you did, Sorry. didn't you? But they're, they're all good questions. So the, the first part of it is, is, is compassionate leadership enough? And the answer is no, because a supervisor can't give that unless they have a toolkit which tells them what they can do and what are their resources. So I can't have a conversation with you unless I know when you raise this, I know what you can, when you can use EAP, who are the people who are skilled in the organisation to help you. I want to keep you close rather than going to EAP because I know that way I can adjust your work. I've got to know what I can do. So the question of those HR people, what does it look like? Really important question. And the answer is what it must be is not highly prescriptive. Mm. So those days when you see policies and procedures fill out reams of paper, you know, if, you, if you can't carry it, you can't read it. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at things around mental health, which are two to three page principle-based policies, which talk about what we, what we aspire to deliver and what are the resources that you can get. And then we train our supervisors and managers on so this is what happens in your experience in life and this is how you deploy the resources. And the obligation under safety law, of course, in six elements of a safety system is, okay, I've got a plan, I've got my process, which is my toolkit, then I've got to have competency-based training. And training is based on the level of risk that exists. So until my supervisors and managers know how to deploy this toolbox, you've got to keep training them. So it can't be just once a year. It can't just have a peer-level method. You mm. can't do that stuff. The people who deal with people every day are supervisors, and it might be a CEO and their executive. It might be a supervisor and the groundsman working in a, in a, in a garden. 
doesn't matter where they are, they've got to know what's inside their toolkit and they've got to feel confident to use it. And once you get that, the rest of it sort of comes together. Then they can be compassionate because they know someone's got their back. And the reason that supervisors do nothing is because when they start to have a conversation and they say to their HR person or their ops person, oh, look, Sam's really struggling, they go, what would you do that for? Well, there's nothing we can do for him. Mm. And you've just gone away and said, hey, Sam, give me 10 minutes, so I'll go and speak to HR. I'm sure there's something we can do. And HR's gone, no, give mm. him an EAP number and you go but he's not after an EAP number he wants help inside the organization he wants me to adjust and I said from Grant and DPP the case you know the obligation is to create a plan around somebody mm. when they've got an issue so they know what are the adjustments that are going to be made there's absolute clarity and we heard Tony Latomontani today talk about one of the reasons that people become unwell is they lack certainty and clarity mm. around what good looks like so we know when I come to chat to you about an issue, the thing that you want is certainty. And I know if I haven't got a toolkit because there's no plan, then when you talk to me, I can't give you certainty. So you never talk to me again. Yeah. You just fail. And eventually your mental health will get to a stage where mm. your performance has fallen off and then we'll be dealing with your performance, not with your health. Mm. So the front line of success here is, go back to you, the, the question, one, we want supervisors to be compassionate and engaged. For them to be compassionate and engaged, they must have the information they need to be able to do, which is the plan and the processes. And to do that, they must be trained regularly until they're competent and supported in the process by the leaders. And the policy and process must be understandable by everybody and not full of safety acronyms that nobody can understand. Yeah. And regularly uh, bring it up and talk about it and yeah. rather than just something you implement once a year. That's right. It? No, it's got to, because training in safety law is based on the level of risk that exists, and we know in all organisations the highest level of risk exposed to any organisation is mental health. 20%. And, yeah, yeah. You've, got to, you've got to form a view, which is until I'm satisfied the supervisor and managers are competent in this process, I will keep training them regularly until I've got to that level. And I'll do that with every person who's a supervisor and manager because otherwise it doesn't work. Mm. We've spoken a lot about the large companies. What about the what about small, medium-sized, self-employed businesses, with, or where they've got, you know, eight contractors, ten, twenty? I mean, mm. is that is this just as relevant? Just as relevant. Yes. Yeah. So the the obligations of law don't change based on the size of the organisation. <clears throat> well, that's not entirely true. What what's a, a reasonable adjustment under um, discrimination law will vary based on the size and resources of an organisation. Mm. But the answer is the productive outcome doesn't change. So for a small business to be successful, so I was chatting to a guy who runs a smallish plumbing business, so it's got about yep. 10 people in it. He's incredibly successful business. And there's, there's absolutely no doubt in understanding why he's successful. He's an engaging, generous and sincere person. And his staff like him, they're, they're, he's a very formal, he's a man over 55, mm. he's a tough, solid sort of soul. He doesn't give away a lot. But they trust him mm. and they talk to him and he's sincere, he's engaged with them. But he's not a nice guy, he's not a friendly, affable sort of guy. He's mm. an old tradie. Mm. But his organisation, those boys and girls who work for him, he has an incredible attendance rate, like very, very low absenteeism. He has no live workers' compensation claims. He's stuff around safety um, because he's been injured himself and so has his son who worked with him. It's a really serious issue for him. So he's invested a lot of money and time around doing stuff safely and it's become a bit of a, yeah, it's more than a focus for him. It's become um, something that he constantly is driving into them. 
but his guys get it. Mm. Now, he's highly productive business, very successful in in the nature of the business he competes, much more successful than most businesses he competes against, high levels of productivity and performance, lobes and tears and rates. Mm. Why? Well, there's millions of reasons why, but the key ones are engagement, compassion, commitment, and delivery of his obligations at war. He's really good at it. You mentioned the phrase trust there a number of times too. How important is trust with your employees to generate that? Yeah, I think it's sort of absolute, isn't it? Mm. Do you, just think of it, let's have a conversation. You and I are out, I don't know why every time I talk to you we're out having a drink, but we're out having a drink <laughs> and you were saying, and I said, so how's the job going, Sam? You go, look, oh, it's good, yeah, it's really interesting, but I don't love it. Well, and I go, well, would you come work for me? The answers are, possibly. But if I if we're chatting and you and I say, how's it going? You go, look, it's a great place. I mean, I really trust the boss. Mm. I can offer you $20,000 more and you're not moving. Yeah. And actually, that's the evidence around recruiting. Mm. So people are in a satisfactory business where they feel trust with their employer are incredibly hard to shift. Even in this volatile market with the, the last two generations of younger people coming through being much happier to move, if they feel they have trust, they don't move. Okay? So they're interested in trust, capability, and development. Regardless of the generation. Regardless of the generation. So let's step back a bit from just recruiting and say, what does that mean? Are you going to disclose to me risk early if you trust me? Yes. Whether it's risk about you, whether it's risk about what we're doing, whether it's innovation. Mm. You're going to talk to me because you know that I will look after you no matter what you say, whether it's bad news or good news. I'm not, a, I'm not a good news employer. You can tell me bad news because I trust you. Well, that's how great businesses develop, isn't it? You say, look, I don't think this is working the way we're doing it, Andrew, but I've had this idea. What do you think? Good employer goes, tell me, take me more down the line. What do you think? Bad employer goes, just do it how you're told. Mm. It doesn't innovate and dies. Yeah, shut up and put up. Sorry. Yeah, so, you know, businesses now are in a highly, even public service businesses are in a highly disrupted space. We need our employees who are experiencing risk to tell us what that risk is, whether it's health-related, whether it's business-related. Mm. Why? Because we've got to innovate and reform and amend and change to meet what the new needs are. So without trust, none of that's going to happen because you're not yeah. going to have those conversations. We've spoken a lot about the employer. What about the employee? What, what's, is there a certain obligation or a certain um, framework or something that's supposed to... Yeah, the, em- the employee, because it comes from a master and servant regime. Remember, employment law is very new. Yeah. So employment law really kicked off in the early 1850s, which might sound a long time ago. That's just before I was born. But it's, um, it's, um, it comes from master and servant law. Okay? And so as solicitors, I, I was subject to master and servant law, which is not common law and not employment law when I first started. I had to give an oath to truly demean myself to the Supreme Court. Um, and I didn't have to be paid if, I didn't, if they didn't want to. Um, so I want you to remember that history because what mm-hmm. that says about employees is they are still highly regulated in their expectations. So at common law, an employee must comply with lawful and reasonable directions. They must always act in the best interests of the business. They must act with fidelity, absolute honesty. They must be fit for the inherent requirements of the job. That's just the common law. Mm. At safety law, they must exercise reasonable care. That's a competent person doing their job to not injure themselves, to not injure others, and again, to comply with um, lawful and reasonable directions or process that are given. Um, in workers' compensation, they must participate in and comply with proper return to works. 
there's quite a lot of obligations that sit upon employees and it's always worth remembering that those obligations are much more strictly applied against employees than they are against employers. So when you look at the Fair Work Regulations that talks about what is serious misconduct, it includes anything that affects the reputation of the organisation, that creates an imminent risk to the health of somebody, being intoxicated at work, failing to comply with a lawful and reasonable direction. Yeah. All those are serious misconduct. So the behaviour of employees is very, very heavily regulated. The behaviour of employers is not so heavily regulated. And we forget, you know, we forget at times the unfair dismissal claims are all against employees, you know, employees against employers. They're all things where we've said someone's misbehaved and breached the law. Mm. So it's sort of worth remembering we, we talk so much about and think that employers have such a burden, but in fact it's much easier to discipline an employee than it is for an employee to discipline an employer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's very When true. did you last hear about an employee disciplining an employer? Well, that worked out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard of that. So, you know, it's only the regulators who get in and say you're a bad employer. So top, but top down driven is what ideally with this, with workplace, uh, mental health and well-being. It's got to be driven by leaders, Sam. But then it's got to be socialised and grown. Yeah. And at the ground level, it has to be real. And to one of our conversations that we had earlier is far too often we... Um, so let me step back for a second. One of the things that I find most annoying, I guess, with employers, and, and I only act for employers, so if my employers are listening, I don't find you aggravating. But <laughs> I find this terrible drive towards fashion unbearable. Um, so suddenly there'll be a workplace wellbeing policy and there'll be a 10,000 step thing, which all groups that compete and do 10,000 steps a day. Well, that, that's terrific, but is, is it curing the health issue that exists within the organisation or is it just something you're going to do for three months. I see fruit on the table. You know, I, I keep saying well-being is not yogurt and yoga. Nap rooms. Yeah. The answer is the people who eat the fruit are the people who eat fruit normally, not the people who should be eating the fruit. The people who do yoga for free are the people who do yoga. They just do it for free. Yeah. We've got to just go back and say, look, what is the evidence that exists in our organisation of health-related issues? Mm. And this isn't fashionable. It's not cute. There's no, you know workplace well-being teddy bear. This is, you know, well-being is an identification of individual health risks within an organisation, the application of resources to mitigate or eliminate that. That's what it is. So we need evidence of what it is and then we need to focus our strategies on dealing with what the evidence is. That's not fashion. Mm. That's just good management. But the problem with fashion is, like zero harm was a fashion, is that everyone knows it's not true. Because everyone knows there won't be zero harm. Everyone knows somebody will get hurt. Mm. And so it's a lie and people know it. Everyone knows in the workplace well-being that fruit doesn't make people better. Like they know that. You know that. Fruit doesn't cure cancer. We know these things. Like it's rubbish. But if what we said was, look, we need to understand the health profile of our workplace, we're going to be asking a whole lot of questions and we'll be rolling out some things that deal with what are the highest levels of risk in our organisation. And we'll give you some evidence back on how we're travelling with that. And this is something that's not going to be six months. It's the life of our organisation. So we'll be keep coming back and consulting with you. We keep asking questions. We'll keep collecting evidence around to make sure that we're spending our money wisely to have the greatest dividend for you. That's not a fashion. That's actually a commitment. Mm. And it's very similar to the thing you say when you want to marry someone. It's, um, mm. I'm here for the rest of your life. That's what employers should be doing. 
do you see it too many times where you've seen employers or rollout policies like the steps or like the fruit bowls and app rooms and just in the think in their thinking, assuming that this is ticking the box for wellness? It's tokenism. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's, it's I've seen it so often that it's it's reached the stage of um, irritating and offending me, as you've probably heard by the tone in my voice. Yeah, but you know, people. One of the things I hate about it most is it assumes people are stupid. And people are not stupid. People are people. Mm. So if the heart of what you're doing is respecting people, then the first thing you need to do is listen. That's not to go out and get our internal marketing and have flashy stuff, all the, you know, the in-house television saying mm. we have well-being. What well-being do you have? Where is the evidence that you have it? But if you respect people and you say to them, look, we know we have health-related issues at work. We actually don't have a good picture of what they are. We we are committed to actually working with you as a group. So we're going to do a couple of surveys. We'll feed you back that evidence. We'll come around and do some focus groups on what be interventions that, that are sufficiently private and respectful, which would help you along that pathway. And then we'll keep feeding back with you over time as we collect more evidence and become clear about what those health-related issues are. Um, that to me is a very respectful process. And as I said to you, when the evidence says that 80% of the stresses that are being introduced from work are outside of work, that means that we have to be mindful of people with children, people with aged parents, people with those sort of things. So there's new EAP at the moment, which has been incredibly successful in helping people with family with mental health issues or aged parents, okay? Fantastic, it's almost impossible to navigate yourself through these systems in any state in Australia. But what a great EAP system to have because I've experienced personally and with my staff all those problems where you're sitting there, I was trying to look after my dad when he was alive, trying to find out what the right solution was. And I was having to do it during work hours. Mm. And, and there was no answer, Sam. There was no mm. answer. It took me months to get to where I needed to get to. Now imagine somebody who could provide that service to me. That's mm. part of the 80%. It's, it's the bottom part of the iceberg. The top part's work. Mm. Imagine if we collect that evidence and we find out that all of our staff or you know, 70% of our staff have problems with looking after family members, whether it's children in care, whether it's sickness, whatever it is. Well, then the wellbeing strategy has nothing to do with fruit, does it? It has the capacity to help people navigate through that system to make their lives better. That would be a fantastic outcome, but it has nothing to do with yoga mm. at all. Yeah, and it's free. It's being genuinely interested and caring about your employees. That's right. So as you're a supervisor and I come and chat to you and you say to me, look, my dad's um, got Parkinson's and I really don't know what to do with it and yeah. it's starting to develop really quickly and I think he's going to actually need, he's going to need some hospitalisation or certainly we're going to need some respite. And I go, look, I can't fix this, but I know we've got a process that can help you identify that. Can I, can I take that on notice and come back to you by the end of the day and I'll have a number for you? And I think... As I understand, they meet with you, they do a triage thing, and then they find stuff for you. But I want to take it off your plate. Mm. How thankful would you be? Mm. Or would you prefer to do yoga? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. It, so, but you can still care about the holistic well-being of a person yes. without having to give them gym memberships and, and, and count their steps, right? I mean, this you can genuinely care oh. about more than what they're doing not just within the workplace, but outside the workplace without having to, you know, give them that. That's right. Bonuses. Remember, well-being is an opt-in thing. Yes. So 
um, a large transport business I dealt with um, built a gym and it was designed for rehab and a whole other stuff and 65% of all injuries that occur in logistics are step up step down injuries okay mm. so it sounded like a good idea but the reason people injure themselves is they're massive because they sit in trucks all day so I spent $400,000 plus building this gymnasium and they could have provided healthy lunch packs and which they eventually did by the way which massively reduced their injuries over a long period of time because actually the guys who were driving didn't want to eat takeaway food. They didn't want to stop altogether and smoke cigarettes and do all that stuff. They were much happier. They're sort of solitary souls. They would have liked to have a quiet meal somewhere and been able to do it. So it saved them money and it made them healthy. But the people who used that were the administrative staff who gave up their gym memberships. Mm. So it was dumb. It actually worked against the people who were involved. Now, there is no doubt that it was a good idea to have a rehabilitative process. But yeah. the most important thing was what was causing it. Well, that, that's what I, was, what I was going to say, was it sounds like they're dealing with the effect, not the cause. Yeah, and when they did the survey eventually, because they had almost no use of it, the guys came back and said, our biggest issue is, um, they did mainly international, interstate work, is that we drive for such long hours, and when we have a break, we've got to, we have to stop at a, a service station or something to have the break. Because uh, that's where the food is mm. and the quality of the food is terrible and it costs us money and what we'd really like is not, we don't want kale, but we, <laughs> we want some basically healthy food. If yeah. we could have that, that would give us some flexibility. And of course, when they started eating more healthy food, they started to see improvements in health and they started to be able to have conversations around health. And of course, with health, the trick is having conversations. It's someone who's a big 24-stone you know, guy and you need to say, look, actually you're starting to become a risk to yourself. You're getting to a stage where you're not fit for the inherent requirements of the job. How do I start to have that conversation? Well, if I can get inroads into food, I can start talking about exercise and I can start looking at your driving regime so that you say, look, when you get out of your truck, if it's not raining, can you go for a walk for 20 minutes? We're very happy for you to do it. Even if it's just around the truck a few times, mm -hmm. we want you to do some squats and do all that sort of stuff. You can start having those small conversations and remember, a little bit of exercise a lot better than no exercise. Mm. So they're educational components, but also just understanding it from their job, yeah. just putting yourself in their position. And then rewarding it. Yeah. Yeah. So it may be that, you know, when we talk about the 10,000 steps, it may be you give them an app which measures the exercise they do when they do it. And if people regularly do it in their breaks, that you reward them and you, you say, you know, John on his trip to Queensland had three stops each time. He did 20 minutes of exercise. Really impressed with John. Well done, mate. Well, remember, you don't have to pay money for people to feel good. No. If you've ever been patted on the back and said you do a good job, you know that's that's better than $20 chocolate you got that went with it. Well, I think that work, that means more to them than any, yeah. uh, even in some respects financial bonuses, yeah. just being told genuinely that they're doing a great job. And we know that in well-being. If you know what good looks like mm. and you do good and you're rewarded for good, it is me immediate fillet for your mental health. You feel better because of it. Mentally healthy workplaces, you refer to this a little bit as well. What what do you perceive as mentally healthy workplaces? Mentally health, healthy workplaces are where people have identified what are what are the health mental health related issues in the organisation. They have a plan and tools that sit around it. They have skilled supervisors in managing it and they have a, a, a lens of compassionate leadership that drives that process. That's what a mentally healthy workplace is. And, and the obligation on the employer, back to that, is is more facilitating, caring firstly, yeah. but then facilitating an introduction 
so that they're being listened to and so that you can actually not being a part of it but introducing them to that yeah it's it's all that and perhaps a little bit more you know to be a mentally healthy workplace i have to ensure that my supervisors are comfortable having conversations immediately when they observe there's any change in the health of a person Mm. that they understand what are the toolkit to apply to assist that person with their mental health they a person who's who's receiving this understands there is no stigma related to their mental health this is part of doing their job part of both them doing their job and there is a deep commitment for the everybody for that person getting better and performing at their highest level that's a healthy workplace as long as people have the tools and the comfort to be compassionate they'll be compassionate as long as it's rewarded if it's not rewarded and productivity is rewarded then they'll just start dealing with people who are highly productive and of course the people who are not productive may be when they're fully healthy productive but if they're not and they're mentally unwell then the supervisor only going to be concentrating on the ones which are productive. So you focus on productivity and you make it like a friend selection process mm. and you end up with a core of really hard-working people who the supervisor likes and the people who are unhealthy and unwell just fall off the bottom end, which means it's terribly damaging to the business, culturally just shocking, um, and we're damaging people. No, I agree with that. T- tell me, uh, as we start to wrap up, who- who's been one of the most significant influences on, on your life as far as it could be professionally or, or personally? Uh, look, I think it's my children. Yes. I think unquestionably there is only, the only people who see you honestly are the people you love. Mm. And when you look into their eyes and you can see your failures writ large, um, you know, I think that's, for, for me, chatting to my children about what I do and then asking the why, Dad? Mm. But it is, isn't that cold-hearted or... But, and pushing, mm. and because of their experiences in life and feeling powerless as a, as a parent, um, you often walk away from a conversation with one of your kids and go, hey, I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to tell them what to do because that's against the, father, the father-daughter rule. Okay? Mm. You're not allowed to actually tell people what to do, even when you're right. <laughs> so I'm allowed to influence, but this is someone I really love and therefore I need to be really cautious about whether this is something I should be influencing or not influencing. So I have to make a quite a serious mm-hmm. decision. And then I have to be clear that the reason I'm doing it is not a selfish reason. It's not for me because I want them to do something the way I want them to do it. It has to be something that's really good for them. And as you're thinking and having those conversations, it, it brings an incredible honesty to, the, to your internal conversations and allows you to take that mindset to everything that you do. And as you do that, you start to go, Oh, no, that was vanity. (laughs) There's no good reason I said that. (laughs) Or, you know, yeah, that's really expeditious way of doing it, but it's actually not a generous way of doing it. There are better ways to do it. So when I look through my daughter's eyes and my son's eyes, and now even worse with grandchildren, um, all that sort of perfidity that comes and cynicism that comes with years and years of legal practice and knowing how to cut through stuff. And you look at it and go, yeah, I know I could do that, but the right thing would look like this. I think that's been good for me. Mm. I think the older I get, the better I get. I think it's, it's a godfather quote. By the time I die, I'll be perfect. Yeah. Is that, there you go. I think that's very true. Doesn't it? That experience uh, plays a big part. With, um, with what books, is there any highlights of any books that you've read that you've uh, really enjoyed or that have led you on a path of inspiration? Or oh, look, I'm, a, I'm a voracious reader, so any one book would not be a good answer. 
Yeah. I've read a lot on um, meanings of happiness. Yes. But that, that was really challenging for me because yeah. I felt that I was a, a very happy soul because I, for the reasons I've said, I actually yeah. don't, I don't care too much about other people. So when I'm happy, I'm happy. And what makes me happy is thinking makes me very happy. So as I read Kahneman's book on happiness, I realised, yeah, was it was Kahneman, was another guy I wrote. Yeah, actually, when I'm at my happiest, it's when I'm sharing a learning with somebody else in a room and it's, and it's moving really fast and it's exciting and I come out of the room much better than I thought I could. And I love that feeling. Mm. And the book I, I read on that is, was great. So I said that purpose-driven happiness. Mm. Um, I've read a lot around neuropsychology and thinking processes. That's been really helpful for me to understand what drives good leadership. And I've read lots and lots and lots of sort of stuff on that. But every time I read, I, I collect bits of information, as you mm. probably realise. So I, I like, uh, like a bowbird, I collect bits of knowledge that makes sense of a discussion that I've had, which I can draw into something. So I like, I like readings that creates an evidence behind a pathway, which I think is a good outcome towards this compassionate leadership. There's no one thing that yeah. does it. I just read all the time, and I'm fascinated by the by theories of learning, theories of understanding. I think it's a place we should all sort of, yeah. as, as leaders in our business, we should keep living in it and start understanding when I say this, what is the impact it has on me? Mm. And if I say it this way, does it have a different impact? Yeah, I should have that sort of level of reflection. Critical thinking, it's something that doesn't happen as much as it should these days with the distractions that are going on in, in life. Yeah. Uh, I think you've highlighted that as something that's been really important. Yeah, our firm has time. We One of the... Um, one of the things we keep saying to staff is to step away. Um, although workplace practice is very challenging because it's very short term, you're, in, you're file opening and closing, mm. not for serious injuries and fatalities, but for performance related issues, workers' comp related issues, inclined to be three to six week file open to close. So things move at enormous pace. One of the temptations is to be drawn into that pace and to, and to churn, to do lots of tasks because it gets you to the end quickly. And so one of the mantras of the business is to step back and understand the value. So what is the value as a lawyer you're trying to create in this? And to try and understand where your skills end and where your client's skills start. And do you need someone else? So another consultant to come in to actually intervene and help in that process. But unless you stand back and are strategic in the way you think mm. and, you're, and you're critical as to your capacity to deliver and the mistakes lots of lawyers make, and I'm certainly guilty of it, repeatedly is of overplaying your hand, of being too involved in the employer. The truth is employers own their business. Mm. They must take accountability. So like daughters, you can influence and you can only influence when you've been involved in some critical thinking that says, my role here looks like this, your role looks like this, success, sort of over here to the right. Mm. This is the way we have to work together to get there. And then I've got to sell you the value of thinking strategically to get there rather than to take away the immediate pain of why you came to see me. So it's a bit like you're coming to a doctor's surgery and saying, look, you need to fix up this, this sore hand that I've got. And I'll just wrap it up. But in fact, actually, you've got a broken bone. But don't worry about the broken bone. Don't worry about the broken bone at all. Yeah. You've gone away, I've given you an injection, you don't feel any pain, your hand's okay. But five hours later, you've still got a broken bone and the pain returns. So. I think all of us have to step back a bit in life and just go, let's not be drawn to the immediate solution. 
as attractive as that feels, and it may be the right answer, but just step back for a second, reflect and go, if I'm looking through the window of what is right, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? What is the problem? And once you define what the problem you're trying to solve is, the rest is a lot easier, but most people try to deal with the pain I'm feeling, not the problem I'm trying to solve. That's very interesting. It's very true. I, I think it's, uh, I mean, there's so many, so many wonderful gems that you've shared with us today. Uh, and I appreciate the time that you've, uh, you've given to us on the podcast. Uh, thanks very much. If people want to get in touch with you, how, how would that happen? They should just go to the website, FCW Lawyers, yep. and FCW just Lawyers. email me. I'm at andrew.douglas at fcwlawyers.com.au. And if you email me, I'll get back to you. The experience that you've got, the uh, the career that you've had, and I'm guessing will continue to have, uh, is exciting. And we appreciate the work you're doing and how you simplify things down so <laughs> actually people can generally understand what you're saying and, and how do we interpret the law and how do we make a meaningful difference so we can go back and apply this in our workplace. So I appreciate your time and thanks very much for the energy and the contribution. That was great to catch up. Thanks. Cheers. Appreciate it. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.